All right, church, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn in the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 3. is where we're going to be in just a few minutes as we continue this series entitled The Story of Walking Through God's Word this year. And we're going to get to uh, 2 Chronicles in just a minute. But uh, let me just say it's great to see you. If you've been here the last couple weeks, uh, I have not. I haven't been here. And uh, my family and I have had the privilege of getting away a little bit to... Uh, Something I really never knew what it meant until I was down there this past few weeks, but it's called the Redneck Riviera. Anybody know what the Redneck Riviera is? It's Myrtle Beach, right? So we spent some time down at Myrtle Beach, and now I know why it's called the Redneck Riviera. Anyway, it was a great time. Uh, missed being with you guys and happy to be back. Uh, really looking forward to continuing this summer through this series that we've started called The Story. And Again, just great stories hearing from you of how you're reading through God's Word, many of you for the very first time, and light bulbs are going off for the first time as you didn't know how this piece fit together, this piece, and kind of see the whole picture of Scripture. And that's what really what we're going for, is we want, we want to, as a church, to know God as He's revealed Himself from Genesis through Revelation, the whole story of Scripture. So I say all that as a little bit of a caveat to begin this morning. It's going to be a little bit of a different message. I'll go ahead and tell you that. A uh, couple reasons. One is my preference is to come to a text of Scripture and dig down deep into that text, and normally we do that. Today's going to be more of an overview of some things that really are going to start in Exodus and end up all the way in Revelation as we try to pull some of these pieces together of God revealing Himself to us and making himself known. So you can hold your place there in Second Chronicles. Let me begin even with an illustration that might help you get your mind around where we're headed this morning. Uh, I want you to imagine for a second that there's a husband and wife. They're a married couple and the, the husband is military. And he is assigned a deployment overseas for two years. He's going to be away from his wife and away from his family for two years. And we have military men and women in this room that do such things like that in service of our country. We thank you for that. So let's say this fellow, he knows he's going to be away from his family for two long years. So before he leaves, he gives his wife and his family a very important gift. He gives them this huge picture of himself. He says, I want to give you this picture of me so that when I'm gone and when I'm away, and even though we won't see each other face to face, you'll be able to look at this picture, and it'll remind you of me. You can look at this picture and have thoughts of me and just kind of wait in expectation for when I come back, because I'm coming back. You know I'm coming back. It's going to be a while, but in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with this picture. So years pass, months pass, and this family takes it very seriously. I mean, they miss dad and they miss their husband, so they take this picture and they put it right in the middle of the den there, kind of the living area, and kind of every day they walk through and they see that picture and it reminds them of dad. And as time goes by, they really become attached to this picture. I mean, now they come to the point where every day they come in there and after breakfast the whole family gathers around and they look at that picture and they kind of just... They focus on that picture, and it brings back memories of Dad, and it's really a special time. And even at night, before they go to bed, they gather around this picture of Dad, and they really become attached 
to this picture. So a couple years go by, and actually about, oh, 22 months, and the mom, the kids, they know dad is supposed to come back at 24 months, but he gets released early. And he comes, and he returns a little bit unexpected of what they expected it to be. And he doesn't tell them he's coming. He wants to surprise them, so to speak. And he comes on the street, and he comes in front of the house, and he gets out of the car, and he's dropped off. And he's so excited that he's here. And he comes up to the house, and he knocks on the door, waiting for his family to come running to the door. And nobody comes to the door. And he knocks again. He's thinking, man, I've been gone for two years and nobody can even answer the door. So he knocks again. He answers the door. Nobody comes to the door. And he walks over. Now watch this. He walks over to the window and he peers in. And his family is all gathered in that den looking at the picture. He keeps knocking on the door. And he thinks, man, why are they focused on the picture? I'm here. And he knocks on the door, he knocks on the door, and finally his wife comes to the door. And he's like, honey, I'm in here after two years. And walks in and she says something that's going to be a shocking statement to you. She says, well, we've really become attached to this picture. And since we have this picture, we really don't even need you anymore. And you go, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, how could you come to the place that you get so emotionally attached to the picture that's only intended to remind you and to point to the real thing? That's the nation of Israel. That what you have in your Old Testament that you've been reading for weeks now are different illustrations and different pictures that God has given to His people that is merely to be a reminder and a picture of what, or I should say, who is coming. God fed His children of Israel with manna. Manna was uh, an object, it was a picture that w where they were provided for and their needs were met. But that manna, that bread from heaven, was to be a picture of the true bread from heaven that was going to come. Time and time and time again, the children of Israel saw these pictures. And we've been reading through the pictures in the Old Testament. And they were intended to stir the affections and stir the heart. But always to be a reminder of who Jesus, the God-man, was coming in the future. Now, what I want to try to do today is I want to try to walk you through what is one of the most vivid pictures in the entire Bible that God gave to His people. It has more chapters assigned to it than almost anything in the Old Testament. It starts in Exodus. It goes all the way through the Old Testament. You hear about it in the New Testament as well. And what I want to do is I want to walk you through this picture, then take you to the New Testament, and we get to look back and see why it was there and realize the meaning of that picture for our walks with Jesus this morning. So I want to take you to the children of Israel. You don't have to turn there. I'll, be look I'll show some verses on the screen. But take you back to the, when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt, right? You remember God sent Moses and led the children out of Egypt. And man, they had been worshiping there among all these polytheistic gods, false gods for 400 years. And God leads them out and He sits them in the wilderness. He says, I'm now your Redeemer. I've led you out and I'm sending you to the promised land. And this God, the God of the Bible, the God that we know, longed for His people to know Him. To understand his ways and his character and who he was. So he 
revealed himself to them in, in kind of an odd way. And I'm going to read this to you. Here's what God commanded the children of Israel there as they were walking through the desert on the way to Canaan. He said, Exodus 25, 8 and 9. I'm just going to read this to you. It says this, let them construct a sanctuary for me. You could use the word tabernacle. You could use the word tent of meeting. They're all used interchangeably. It says, I want you to construct a tent for me that I may dwell among them. Now, we know God doesn't live in a tent. We know God doesn't live in a building. This is a symbol. God says, as you're journeying by faith and you're on the move through the wilderness, I want you to build this tabernacle. And I want you to build it according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle. There's that word, which means to dwell, and the pattern of all the furniture just so you could construct it. Now, stop right there for a minute. So million Israelites walking through the wilderness, he said, you're going to build this tent, you're going to build this tabernacle, you're going to place it right down in the middle of you so that I can symbolically dwell with my people. And there's going to be furniture in this tabernacle. There's going to be objects in this tabernacle. And every one of them means something. Watch. Every one of them is a picture of something that's coming. So go ahead and put the picture up on the screen. I just want you to see this is not the real thing. All right. Uh, this is just a picture that they put together out in the desert. Once they got the thing built, the tabernacle, it looks something like this. See, it's like a tin, there's some objects of furniture on the outside, and what I want to do for just a few minutes is I want to walk you through the different objects that were there in the tabernacle that God said, hey, I want you to know that I'm dwelling among you. God is revealing something about himself to the children of Israel. So let me walk you through some of these key pieces of furniture. Now, this is a drawing. This may help you a little bit, and there's different objects. So actually, inside the tent itself, over to the left, there's oh, I don't know, four or five different pieces of furniture. Let me walk you through these really quick. You say, this is a lot, Pastor Mike. Is all this going to make sense? Trust me, it probably makes sense. Some of you are going to have an aha moment, and you're going to say, I've been reading that for years, and I didn't know what that meant. So the centerpiece really inside the tent itself, the most important object that was there, and you can read all this in Exodus. For sake of time, I'm not going to read all of it, but Exodus 25, 21 says there was a piece of furniture. This is to the far left there called the Ark of the Covenant. You say, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I get it. Okay, that was the idea. But this piece of furniture was given, and they said, build a box. God told Moses, you're going to cover this box with gold. And down inside this box, you're going to place the Ten Commandments, revealing the righteousness of God. You're going to paint it with gold as kind of a symbol of the holiness of God. And then watch this. You're going to take a lid, you're going to take a cover, and you're going to put it on top of this golden box. And there's going to be angels there on it, symbolic angels. And it represents the very holy presence of God himself. Now listen, God doesn't live in a box. All right, sometimes we try to put him in a box, right? He doesn't live in a box. It's a picture. It's a picture of God's holiness. It's a picture of God's righteousness. And it's symbolized by this Ark of the Covenant. He said, put it at the end of the tabernacle. Put it right there. And then as you move out from that very central spot, there's this curtain. And we've kind of cut it in half there so you can see it. But there's this veil that separated what was the symbolic presence of God from the rest of the tabernacle. So you moved out, and the next piece of furniture came to was this piece called the altar or 
ark of incense. You say, what's that all about? Well, you know what incense is. Incense is, incense is something that's an aroma that rises up. So on a regular basis, the priests would go into this tabernacle and they would mix up this fragrant aroma and they would put it on this altar and it would continually burn constantly up as a picture of prayers and intercession rising up before God. Problem is the priests had to go in there all the time and put that new incense and fresh incense. It was a symbol of prayers rising up before God. And then over here to the left side or down at the bottom, you see something that looks like a candlestick or a candelabra. That's what it is. It's where we get the Jewish menorah. It was a lampstand that was in there. This thing was covered. It was dark in there. The only source of light was this lampstand. And the priest's job were to keep olive oil in this lampstand so it would continually burn. So they would come in there regularly and put the, put the olive oil in there. And then right to the back, you see a table with two little things on it. That's bread, and that's the table of presence. What does that mean? Well, God put in this tabernacle here a table. Anytime you read in the Old Testament and you come to the word table, you think fellowship. You think communion. I mean, we sit around the table and we eat, right? Why? Well, because we're hungry, but there's fellowship. There's interaction that's going on. It's a picture there in the presence of God. He's inviting us to communion and fellowship. And the priest's job were to go in regularly and put new bread on that table. And new bread, it would get old and they would renew that bread on a regular basis. And this was what was inside the tabernacle. All of these things were pictures as God revealed himself. Now, hang with me here. This is and then God said to Moses in Exodus 25, 26, around in there, 28, he said, you need to cover the tabernacle. So there were four layers of covering, and I don't, you can see them there, and I do not have time to dig into those. I, I hope something sparks you, and you go open your Bible, and you begin to read these things, because it's a beautiful picture. There were four layers. You know how you, pu you put up a tent? Well, this was like a covering of a tent. The inside layer was blue, so that if you were in there, you were looking up and you saw the blue with angels kind of all over. It's a picture of eternity and a picture of heaven. But the outside layer, that brown kind of uh, beige look, was simply made out of skin, animal skin. So it was some of their jobs to take, and they would take animals, and they would take their skin. It was very unattractive skin. I mean, nobody walked past this tabernacle in the wilderness and went, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. No, it was a very unattractive structure. Now watch this. He said, Moses, you're going to cover this tabernacle with skin. So that in the future you will know God is going to dwell among his people. Watch this. With skin on. It's a picture of what was to come. Now as you look at the tabernacle, there's some. There's some object lessons that we learn right away from the tabernacle. And I'm going to give you three of these really quick, and then I'm going to take you and show you a couple more pieces of furniture that are on the outside. And you say, this is a lot to take in this morning, Pastor Mike. I know, hang on. It'll make sense to you, I promise, okay? Hang on. So a couple of the object lessons I want to read to you. We know from this that God said, I, I build this tabernacle, and I want you to build it. I want you to put it right in the middle of you. So that you know that the God of heaven desires to dwell with his people. Exodus 25, 22, God said of this structure, he said, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, which was there on the Ark of the Covenant. From between the two angels, I'm going to meet with you. Exodus 25, 28, construct that sanctuary because I want to dwell among my people. Object lesson number one is this. 
God desires to dwell among His people. Listen, if you are a child of God and you know Jesus Christ, you have, listen, you have a God in heaven who does not stand aloof from you. He is pursuing you. And if you don't know God and you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, know that the God of heaven is pursuing you and wants to know you and have a relationship with you. God said, build this tabernacle. Put it among the people so that all will see the God of heaven desires to dwell among his people. Then there was a problem. There's a huge tension that the tabernacle demonstrates. There's something that doesn't doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And you see that in another object lesson that I'm going to give you. And here's your second object lesson is this. Sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. The tabernacle demonstrates that. How's that? I don't understand, Pastor Mike. Because with all that was there in the tabernacle, there was that veil. The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top that represented the very intimate presence of God. That was an inner room that was called the Holy of Holies. But there was this thick veil that separated that, and it was off limits. It was a holy place because of the holiness of God. Only the high priest, listen, only the high priest could go in there once a year and he had to put down blood for his own sins symbolically and he could only go in there once a year. And it was so holy, listen, and seen as so reverent, even when the high priest walked into that Holy of Holies, he had bells on the bottom of his uh, priestly garments. So if the bells weren't clanging, they knew he probably wasn't breathing because he had died in the presence of God. And they literally tied a rope to his foot because it was seen as so holy. If you went in there with sin or something like that, you would die in the presence of God. They had to pull him out by the rope. It was seen as a place of the justice and the holiness of God. The veil separated that place from mankind. If you don't know one of the key messages of the Bible that you hold in your hand, the dilemma of this Bible is not... How could a good God ever send someone to hell? The dilemma is how could a perfect, righteous, holy God, unstained by sin, ever have fellowship with a sinful man like me? That's the question of the Bible. So you see here God has all of this. Go back to that picture of the outer court and all of that. You see this picture of the tabernacle and all these pieces of furniture. and It's to be a place of God desiring to dwell in and with his people, but there's a problem, our sin. So now let's move from the tabernacle itself out into that kind of outer court area there. And There's two more pieces of furniture that God told Moses to build. What are these two pieces of furniture all about? Now hang with me, this is all going to make sense. So if you were a priest in that day and you were ministering, you were one of those set apart, you would walk into this gate and the first object you would come to is kind of that other square box to the far right. It's called the brazen or the bronze altar. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. Maybe you read about it in your reading. You said, I don't know what that means. It's so confusing. But there was this bronze altar. As you were approaching fellowship with God and to know God, the first thing you came to was an altar. Why? I don't know if you know I don't know if you know this or not, but you know what happens on an altar. <laughs> Things die. That's what happens on an altar. 
So if you were to pass by this tabernacle on a regular basis, if you were a Philistine or maybe one of the other nations and you were to pass by the tabernacle and kind of peer over, what in the world are those crazy Israelites doing? You would see on a regular basis priests taking thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and bulls and ox and goats and all these animals and they would lay them on that altar and they would slit their throat and the blood would drain down and it would just be this big bloody mess. Not a good place for someone with Peter to go. Not good. And if you were if you were from another nation and you didn't understand, you would say, What is going on? And the first thing that would happen is you would come to this altar. Something had to die. And it was a picture that our sin is ugly. You've ever read through the Old Testament and really the Bible, you've got to think, man, and let's just be honest, if you've been following along with the story, which I encourage you to be reading through your Bible, you've had to get some sections of Scripture and go, man, this is a bloody book. This was a bloody scene here on that altar. It was to be a vivid picture. Now watch this, that sin is an ugly thing. And sin brings forth death. And there was a realization that the only way fellowship with God was possible was through blood. So they continued on, and then they come to this other piece of furniture. You see it there, it's a little bit smaller between the tent and the brazen altar. And it was this big wash bowl. It was this big bronze basin. It was full of water. And the priest, as he was approaching, symbolic of the people toward the tabernacle, he would come to this big washbowl and he would look down in it. And symbolically, this washbowl, this is huge, this washbowl was made with bronze, but it was also made, watch this, with crushed mirrors. <laughs> they would take bronze mirrors from the ladies of the day. I, I guess guys have mirrors too. Sorry, that was a wrong thing. And they would take these mirrors that belonged to the guys and the ladies, and they would crush them. That's what they made the lining of this washbowl. So that as you were approaching the place of worship, you would look down in this bowl and you would see a reflection of yourself. What does that mean? As we approach a place of worship, we say, God, show me anything in my life that's not right with you. There's a cleansing that must take place. You don't do that cleansing. I don't do that cleansing. Jesus Christ is the only one that can cleanse us. And they come to this basin. And then the priests, after washing there in that basin, they would go on into the tabernacle and year after year after year after year after year these priests would go in and they would re, they would put new bread as a picture on the place of fellowship and they would put new oil in the lamp to keep the lamp lit and they would go and put more incense on the you know the altar of incense but for years after years after years after years the veil was still there the veil was still there so fast forward a few years children of Israel, whenever they would move or whenever they would move through the wilderness, they had to pack this thing up. I mean, you've gone camping and you know what it's like to have to pack up your tent and all that. Well, this thing was massive. It was 75 feet wide. It was 150 feet long, uh, the outer court, and they had to pack this thing up and they would move it with them. So it was, it was portable until you get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, where we are now. And the nation of Israel became a legitimate nation again. Nation of Israel, where we're reading now in Second Chronicles, is now one of the most powerful nations on earth. They have a king. They have Saul and they have David and Solomon is now the king. And the nation of Israel is one of the most powerful nations on earth. They don't need a, a 
tabernacle that's transient or portable anymore or this ugly, unattractive tent. They need a new temple that is perfect. So God in Second Chronicles chapter 3, you can look there. I'm going to read this to you quickly. Solomon is now the king. And God commissions Solomon as the king. He says, you're going to build now not a new tabernacle. You're going to build a temple. It's going to be a much more permanent structure. And he says this in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. And the temple was built on the threshing floor of Aruna and the Jebusite that David had selected. We read about that a few weeks ago when Pastor Paul preached. So here... In this particular place in Jerusalem, God says, hey, Solomon, watch this. The king, you're going to build this magnificent temple there. Go ahead and put a picture up. We don't know exactly what it looked like. We have a lot from the Bible. We don't have pictures. What we have is something like that of Solomon's temple, just this magnificent edifice there. Everything on the inside was the same structure as the tabernacle. There was the Holy of Holies with the ark. There was the... Uh, the table and the bread, there was the lampstand, there was all that stuff that was still on the inside. But now the outside looks so much more attractive and so much more, watch this, king-like on the outside. So from about 800 B.C. all the way through, now the temple was destroyed a few times by the Babylonians, came in in 486 B.C., and then the Romans destroyed it in 70 A.D., so... You can study that on your own, but for the most part, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the priests would come in and they would kill the sheep and kill the goats and they would offer all these sacrifices after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. They would go into the temple and they would keep the lamps lit and they would keep the bread out and they would come to the veil and guess what? The veil was still there. The veil was still there. See, something began to happen in the minds and the hearts of many of the Jewish people is Watch this now. They really begin to love the pictures. I mean, this temple was magnificent. If you haven't read in 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles about all the gold that was put into this temple and how big the pillars are and that the top was lined with gold and nations would pass by and go, wow, look at that magnificent temple of the nation of Israel. The people of Israel really come to love the pictures. See? And then you fast forward about, oh, 800 years or so, and the time has come for the fulfillment of God's promise. And now it's not going to be a picture. He is going to come from heaven and dwell among his people as the God-man, Jesus Jesus steps on the scene in Jerusalem and among the nation of Israel, and he's, he's here. The Savior is here. And he makes some ridiculous statements if you don't understand the background of what we just read. John 2.19, I'm just going to read this to you quickly. Jesus is there near the temple. At this time, it was not Solomon's temple anymore. It was Herod's temple, and he had built this huge edifice to himself, really. And Jesus was outside that temple, and he says, Hey, you can destroy this temple. Just destroy the temple. In three days, I'm going to raise it up again. If you were there, you had, it was one of those head scratchers. Jesus, are you smoking? What are you talking about? They scratched their heads, and John 
gives us a little bit of an interpretation. John 20, 21, the Jews then looked at him and said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. And John says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Huh? Still doesn't really help us a whole lot, does it? And then there's a verse in Matthew 12, 6. Jesus is there with his disciples and Jesus is there with many of the religious leaders who know they love the temple. And Jesus just cuts to the chase and he says, listen, you need to understand something. Go ahead and put that up, Matthew 12. He says, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. He said, all that the temple and all that the tabernacle and all that the sacrifices for thousands of years were a picture of I am here and something greater than the temple is here. God had now left heaven and was dwelling among his people. You say, why was there a tabernacle and then a temple? I mean, why was there two different structures? It was to be a picture. Watch this. This is massive. That the first time Jesus came, the first time God came to dwell among his people, he was going to be clothed in very unattractive skin of a servant. But the next time he comes, when he returns, he will have the outer garments and he will appear as a king. And we're looking for that day. You say, Pastor Mike, I kind of get all that is there is there something you can give me to help me put all those pieces together what does that mean for me here now 20 15 years from the temple i mean there's no temple there's no tabernacle what are you talking about how does that apply to me you can take your bibles if you want i'm going to read these off the screen i'm going to read you some verses now from hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 if you want to turn there you can i'm going to give you the commentary of all we've just read all we've just looked at from a new testament perspective in the book of hebrews as you're reading through your Bible, just know the book of Hebrews is that link between the old and the new. It explains so much of what we just looked at. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. The author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, explaining things like Jesus saying, something greater than the temple is here. What are you talking about, Hebrews 9, 1? That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth, making reference to the tabernacle and even the temple, verse 2. There were two rooms in that tabernacle, and the first was a lampstand, a table, stuff we just looked at. Verse 3, then there was a curtain, that's the veil, and behind the curtain was a second room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. Verse 6, when all these things were in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. Talking about how the priests would enter and go through all these religious duties. Verse 9, now get this, ready? Here's the commentary from the book of Hebrews. This, all that we just walked through, all that we just looked at, is an illustration pointing to the present time. The author of Hebrews says the word illustration here, it literally is the word parabole. It's the word parable. It was something that was given as a picture of what was to come. And the Jews of that day were scratching their heads and saying, you talking about the ornate temple? All those sheep and goats and all those sacrifices were merely a picture of the Messiah to come, Jesus? 
for the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the conscience of the people who bring them. No sin, no person in eternity has ever been made right by the blood of a sheep or a goat. Ever. And then you get on. Verse 11, the writer of Hebrews wants to bring it all to clarity for you and me. And he says this, so. How do you wrap this up? Christ. Christ. The Lord Jesus himself has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made with human hands, not created part of this world with his own blood. Verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all time secured for our redemption forever. Something greater than the tabernacle or the temple is here. It is King Jesus, the God man. And the writer of Hebrews says all that was given on the earth was a picture of what is going on in heaven. God has entered. Jesus has entered the very throne room of God himself. He has shed his own blood. And we now have full and open access into the very presence of God himself. Hallelujah. What a savior. So here's what I want to do to end the time. You've got a lot to wrestle with here in your head. Man, I pray it spurs you on to go some, study some of this stuff on your own. I'm going to ask our team to come on up and just kind of begin to play really, really softly. And here's what I want to do. It's going to be a little bit different for you. I want us now to take this picture that God has given us. Hebrews says it's an illustration for us now of the present time. And what you have is you have a, a picture of what true worship is. And how true worship is made possible. The service is not over at all. I know some have to step out. But I want you to see, we're going to walk through. We're going to start at the outside of the tabernacle. We're going to walk through these pieces that you've now seen. And it's going to bring you to realize you are reading a book here that gives you picture after picture after picture. But let me tell you who the hero of the Bible is. His name is Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is none greater. If all we have is Christ, that is enough. We don't need a temple, we don't need a structure, we don't need a brazen altar. Jesus is enough. Now watch this. Go ahead and put that picture up on the screen. There you go. And I want you to think as a worshiper, headed towards God. We're, we're moving towards fellowship with God. You walk in outside the gates and the first thing you come to is this altar. And you look and you, you think, there's no sheep or goats on the altar. In fact, we don't even need that altar anymore. Why? Because Hebrews 10.10 says this, For God's will was for us, you and me, followers of Christ by faith, to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Watch this. Once for all time. There is no more sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. So listen. In those moments where you're coming to worship or you're spending that time with the Lord or you even enter in here on Sunday or whatever, as you're pursuing God, don't let the devil remind you of how wicked your sin is. We are. We're wicked. You remind him, hey, there is no more altar. There's one sacrifice for all times. My debt is paid in full in Christ. It is done. Right? And then you move on towards that basin that water, this big tub, and 
The priest in that day, he would be washed in that basin one time by Moses. He would be washed by someone else, by Moses. And it was a picture of being ceremonial clean from then on. In Christ, you have been made clean. Jesus, when he's with his disciples in John 13, he gathered them around in that upper room. And he said, all of you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. If you have placed faith in Christ, you are ceremonially clean, positionally clean before God. To enter into fellowship with God. But the priests, as they passed that basin, after the one-time cleansing position, they would they would look down in that basin and it was a mirror and it revealed things in their life that was not right and what they would do is they would take that water and they would put their hands and they would wash their hands and they would take that water and they would wash their feet as a picture that when we look into the law of God and when we spend time with God the spirit of God often reveals things that are not right our hands and feet get dirty picture of confession the picture of being honest with God and the priest would continue and he would enter into the tabernacle and then he would look over to his right and you your mind's eye by faith look over to your right and you see there a table and on that table's bread soul satisfying bread like the bread of heaven that came down and in your mind you can think John chapter 6 verse 35 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one at the table that satisfies your soul. And there are times in our Christian journey of faith that we drift away from the table of fellowship, right? We're children of God. We know God. We're cleansed. But we drift away from that table of fellowship. Listen, when you drift away from the table of fellowship with King Jesus, it is a lonely, miserable place. When you look over to that lampstand, the only source of light in that tent, when you're reminded of John chapter 8, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, the only way you have is by the power of the Spirit of God opening your eyes to see God as He really is. Jesus, illumine our eyes. Give us eyes to see you. And if we would move on to that table of incense that was right outside the veil. No more burning aroma. You don't have to have that because now Jesus, the Bible says this, Hebrews chapter 4, I love this. It says, therefore, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. Here's what that means. Jesus Christ is praying on your behalf. He is interceding on your behalf unceasingly. What is it that holds you in Christ? You say, well, I'm doing my best. It's not you doing your best. It is the intercession of your high priest who never stops offering up prayers on your behalf before God. He ever lives to intercede and cry out on your behalf. He loves you that much. The veil is it's not only gone, it's ripped from top to bottom. And we know that biblically in John 19, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And then Matthew 27 tells us that in that moment when Jesus said, it is finished, that in the temple, the veil ripped from what? Top to bottom, something only God could do. And for the first time in all of history, 
access into the very presence of God himself was available to you and me through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And there's the ark. There's the mercy seat. That place in past times where people had gone in and the judgment of God had come down. It was a picture of His righteousness and now His His holiness, His purity and our sinfulness. But now there's a lid, there's a place of atonement. Our sins are, what's this? Covered. By the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My dear children, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. But if any of us does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one. He himself is the sacrifice that atones, that covers. The word means he is the mercy seat so that the place where we should receive judgment and condemnation is now a place of great mercy and grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And the writer of Hebrews in the attempts to draw all this together and to bring it to application for you and me. You say, what, what do I do with this, Pastor John? I mean, if you're a child of God and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, there ought to be a swelling of joy in you that all of this is available in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, 16 says this, Therefore, Let us draw near, draw near, with confidence to the very throne of grace, that place represented by that Ark of Covenant, the very presence of God. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You never have to be out of the presence of God. You never have to be away from the grace of God. You never have to be out from under the mercy of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He covers you in His grace. That is what it means to be in Christ. And that will never change for you and for me, child of God. All this, Hebrews 9 says, is a picture for us to see Jesus in Jesus' place. So we're going to end our time this morning. We're going to worship King Jesus. And I'm going to invite you just for a moment to simply bow your head right there where you're seated. Just want you to ponder on some of the things you've heard. Just you and the Lord for a minute. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing triumphantly in just a minute. In Christ alone. He is my righteousness. He is my hope. He is my everything. And then we're going to be dismissed in just a moment. And we're going to go out with the greatest message the world has ever heard. Because there's people who do not know it is Jesus and Jesus only. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for loving enough us enough that you choose to dwell with us. You have done everything necessary for us to draw near. We love you. We worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Start to sing of this great Savior, King Jesus. Will you stand and sing with us as our team leads us in song?